Otherwise, this is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon. My co-pilot, Drew, is in the fresher right now, so he'll be here in just a little bit. But while we're waiting on him, I am here with my other co-host. She is cooler than Jin Erso slapping some sense into Grand Admiral Thrawn. It's Lindsay. Ha ha ha. Well... Thank you so much, kind sir. Is it okay if I hop in Drew's co-pilot seat and just at least keep it warm for him for now? Yeah, keep it keep it warm. All right, no, all right. He never called fives. Don't don't fart on it or anything like that. But just to keep it nice and comfortable. Will I still be cooler than Jenna or so if I did? Yeah, I mean it's all true. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we have another shaggy co-pilot along with us today from Unmistakably Star Wars. We have, you know what? This is my show, so I'm going to say it. He's a big deal. It's Devin Clufford. <laughs> well, greetings, my little Tauntauns, and I'll just be back here uh, in the cape closet seeing what fits. <laughs> Wait, I want to trade si- seats. Ah, to too bad, too bad. <laughs> Devin just wants to hang out with Kira, let's be honest. Well, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I think we have Drew is in here now as well. Maybe. He popped up on Skype. He didn't pop up in real life. He's a faker. Uh, anyways, we're going to keep going. Today, we are talking about Return of the Jedi, which is my favorite Star Wars. And it's it's actually very serendipitous that we're talking about uh, this today. We are recording on Thursday the 25th, and it is a actually pretty cool day because this is the four-year anniversary of me starting Clashing Sabers. Nice. Well, happy anniversary. Thank you. I uh, bought myself nothing. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) we're going to talk about uh, Return of the Jedi. But of course, before that, we have to ask the ever important question to our guests. Devin, what are you Star Warsing lately? What am I Star Warsing lately? I'll tell you what I'm not Star Warsing. I'm not Star Warsing this little thing called Galaxy's Edge, a.k.a. the world's most expensive shopping mall. Um but I'm here's what I am Star Warsing. I am Star Warsing a lot of original artwork from Star Wars artists. Anybody in particular? Uh, you know, actually, it's taken this long just to actually get all of the art I purchased at Celebration actually up on the walls. But I, I will shout out uh, one to Michael Pasquale, who hasn't yet to do anything that I don't absolutely love. So Michael Pasquale... I heart you. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, we'll definitely uh, get a link to that in the show notes. I I now have, thanks, of course, to Unmistakably Star Wars and to Michelle, I have Star Wars artwork all around my podcast studio, and it is quite enjoyable to have. I love... I, I couldn't just, like, go on Pinterest and look at Star Wars fan art for hours on end. It's insane how talented some people are out there. Mm. Lindsay, what, true. what about you? What are you Star Warsing lately? You know, similar to Devin, I actually just this week got all of my different 
artwork and different exclusive prints from Celebration hung up in my office. And granted, it was only because I had family visiting from Florida and I needed to put everything up on the wall before they got here. (laughs) So the motivation might not have been the best reason, but everything is finally up and I get to show it off. And I will say my family had the typical reaction that my friends have when they come into my new house and it's, oh, it's so lovely. Oh, you're so grown up and such an adult. And then they get into my office and they're like, oh, all right, this makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> like, we didn't even know that you were such a, oh, no. She's oh, she's still six is. years old. She's, <laughs> it actually is my choice from when I was that age, too. <laughs> I wish I had my toys from that age. Oh, man. What art did you get from Celebration? Um, so I actually, what I did was, um, again, because I was lucky enough to get that Jedi Master ticket again. I was lucky enough to get the Jedi Master ticket again. I know, I'm the worst. I'm like that SpongeBob uh, meme. <laughs> how I feel (laughs) but it's okay Um, but I got all the exclusive prints from the different panels so I have framed that from all the other prints from Orlando and I've got a nice nice little row going on right above the uh, bookshelves of all those exclusive ones I mean I get wait hold on a second Devin you got to sneak into the Jedi Master section Lindsay got I I was gonna yeah. Oh, so so Lindsay, did you sneak in, or you actually paid for it? Oh no. Oh wait, I can sneak in and not pay for it. Well, it's been oh, known to happen. Oh. Some <laughs> no, I am. I'm the idiot who pays for it. <laughs> oh well, I I thank you. I thank you. I just let you know that I enjoyed myself. Um, yeah. So I actually want to know though. So when that came up, because I've never had the opportunity to log on when that was actually still available. So was there a moment of hesitation or was it just sure joyous uh, occasion when that was actually still available when you logged on to purchase? It was actually um, the day I did this for both Chicago and for Anaheim. Um, The day that they announced when tickets would be released, I immediately sent out a calendar invite to my entire team and some other coworkers and booked out a conference room for everyone to bring their nice. computers and cell phones. And we had 15 people in a room with a couple of devices each. And sure enough, only one person every year has been able to get in and get wow. those tickets. So it's it's pretty much grab and go after that. Oh, oh my. Well, so Brandon, you and I need to harness the power of our students then, clearly. I mean, if... If Lindsay can get a room full of people, we can get an entire campus full of people. I mean, that's what I think, but you've seen teachers try to follow directions. It doesn't <laughs> usually go well. No. Fair. Fair point. Was it, I think it was, it had to be Force Awakens, Lindsay, where you had like four computers going and your credit card got shut down? Oh, yeah. No, because it was, it was Last Jedi. And because, so Devin, what I do is when there's a new movie coming out, I take the day off of work and I see the movie five times in 24 hours. Naturally. naturally. Obviously. As any but sane person would do. that, it was for Last <laughs> Jedi. I was doing a couple different theaters um, between Thursday night and Friday. And I was also doing it in Florida because I was going down and visiting some friends. So, of course, Chase, because they noticed on multiple computers in a different state my credit card trying to go through chase shut down all my credit cards ouch 
I know. So thank God my roommate was an absolute saint and started putting them on his. And then I had to go and reactivate everything through Chase. So it was close, but I got him. That's all that counts. <laughs> the struggle <laughs> is real. Yeah, I got the story. <laughs> and that's what counts. All right, Lindsay, I'm kicking you out. Back out in the, into the back seat. My co-pilot's here. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Drew. There's plenty of room in the cape closet. Come on, Lindsay. All right, let's go. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Hey, there he is. Oh, good evening, friends. How You're are lucky you? You're lucky I made it. <laughs> That's <laughs> as positive as I could be at the moment. So let's do it. Uh, so we were just talking about what, uh, what we're Star Warsing lately. So what are you into right now? Uh, after six long, grueling weeks, I have finally finished reading Alphabet Squadron. Ooh, what'd you think? You know, I thought it was okay. I definitely think there's room for some improvement, but I, I thought it was okay. It wasn't as bad as I've heard some people complain about, but I don't think it was as fantastic as others I've heard singing its praises as well. Um, I have nits to pick, but that's not that big a deal. Well, I mean, you always do. I think it's one of those books you kind of like have to be a this sounds terrible but you have to like a certain type of star wars to really be on that side of like loving it and i don't know exactly what that is like what <laughs> it when is? i think you lean more toward the star than the wars part yeah well, I, think so. I don't know about that i think you just have to be willing to overlook certain shortcomings and then go into it already with a super positive view of it and and not allow your experience to derail your expectations. Mm -hmm. Cross-promotion, we do have a great episode of Don't Burn the Sacred Text Out about Alphabet Squadron, if anyone yeah. wants to. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to go listen to that to get you guys... It, I'm going to have to listen to that one to get you guys in-depth opinions on it, and then write 7,500 words on a response. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guys from Sith Talk really made me want to revisit the book again, Sam in particular, so... It... I feel like it was a really solid setup book. And I don't want to say anybody who likes it like is wrong for absolutely loving it because like I said, it is what Star Wars is for some people. It's just not my particular cup of uh, Jawa juice. So we are going to go ahead and move on. And because I'm always about self-improvement, I'm going to be a better person than I was in the past. And I'm going to read the review that we got in a timely manner. How about that, guys? Ooh. Does that sound good? Proud of you. I, You know, I try. This is dated July 16th, 2019. And so I just wanted that stated for the record that <laughs> I, I got this in, sure in a timely manner. You sure it's not 2018 by any chance? Okay. I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure. I wasn't going to say that. Okay. Oh, Don't dang it. Gosh. Read the show notes. Uh, this comes from <laughs> Kleinerbach07, and he or she says, Clashing Sabers is a thoroughly enjoyable and insightful listen. You can tell how much time and effort everyone puts into the show topics and discussions. <laughs> how little you know. Uh, this is definitely a place for Star Wars fans to share their thoughts, feel comfortable doing so, have their own opinions challenged and changed. I recommend this podcast to anyone interested in diving deeper into the saga we all know and love. I truly enjoy the different perspectives that all of the hosts bring to the table. 
I've been watching Star Wars for movies for over 30 years and have thoughts and comments I have heard on this pod have made me appreciate the stories more and see things from a different point of view. If you're looking for a show that will enhance your Star Wars viewing slash reading experience, this is the one for you. So thank you, Kleinerbach07, for your kind words. And uh, hopefully you're listening to this episode. If you are, shoot me an email over at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. I would like to send you a little uh, little thank you. So um, also to all of our new listeners, because every episode we are getting significantly more listeners, which is totally awesome. Um, and hopefully you're digging what we're doing. Uh, if this is your first time here, welcome. And we're mean to each other in the nice kind of way. So just <laughs> enjoy the ride there. That's um, how we show love. Exactly. If we're not picking on you, then we don't love you. That's how it works oh, here. Wow. Okay. Uh, guys, you know what time it is? I think uh, I do. Nope. Happy beats here, buddy. Come on. <laughs> I'm with the droid on this one. I'm with the droid on this one. Happy beats here, buddy. Come on. Happy beats here. I'm with the droid on this one. Happy beats here, buddy. Come on. Happy beats. I'm with the droid Happy on this here, one. Buddy. Come on. And, of course, since we're talking about Return of the Jedi this week, we are going to, surprise, surprise, talk about Return of the Jedi in our Happy Beeps section. And want to start off with uh, just now that we are on our last part of the original trilogy, uh, Bill was nice enough to put together a little synopsis of the original trilogy toys from 1977 to 2019. So this would be just total wow. amount of toys uh, created, not specifically action figures, plushes, or anything like that, just overall toys. And, Lindsay, I'm going to throw this one to you first. Which do you oh, think... But I'm so bad at them. I know, that's why I'm sending it to you first. <laughs> power. <laughs> unlimited power. Uh, which one do you think has the most toys? What are the options? Yeah, are we talking characters, films? What's no, the we're talking films. Criteria? We're talking oh, okay. just the original trilogy films. Which film has the most toys? Okay. Wow. Oh, man. I'm going to go... I'm, And I'll explain why. I'm going to go with New Hope because I feel like the Moss Eisley scene just really pushed it over the edge. You would be correct. <gasps> Finally. Yes, significantly. So A New Hope has 1,191 different toys. What in the world? <laughs> wow. So I think the I think you're right there with the Cantina. Then it gets to Empire and Return of the Jedi and Empire you have 823 and Return of the Jedi, you have 813. Oh, it's so close. I know. So I guess... That's it, amazing, though, because Jedi has Jabba's Palace, and all those different guys, I'm sure, have two or three different iterations as well. Do you think, though? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Like, I remember getting the special edition set that had all three of the new dancers in it. Like... But and the, those, I'm sure, got re-released, and so all, and that replaced other characters that they took out. So, but the background character—I don't know, because I'm I'm watching Return of the Jedi as we're doing this, and I was just in you seeing Jabba's palace, and I'm like, I don't really remember seeing a lot of those action figures on the shelf, at least, you know, special editions and beyond, which is when I would have, you know, been paying attention to the toys. 
I don't know if all the Man. background characters there were. The dancers, yeah, like Lando you in have disguise. Ula. But I would consider her more like a forefront character there, like a like a Max Rebo, but just the random guys in the corner, I don't feel like they had that that many you versions mean you, of them. You didn't grow up playing with your Efont Mon toys and whatnot? No. Nope. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a family show, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, apparently, according to Twitter, I'm wrong about Bib Fortuna. So, I had the Bib Fortuna. Why are you wrong about Bib Fortuna? Bib Fortuna creeps me out, and apparently, he doesn't creep other people out. Um, oh, dude, he is creepy. It's, it's not okay. It makes me... <laughs> um, but I remember seeing his toys out. That's what brought it to mind. And different versions of him, but I don't know about... All right. Mm-hmm. So, now... We're going to move to Return of the Jedi specifically and the different sequences of the movies. So we're looking at total toys again for this one for the different uh, parts of the film. So we have the concept art. We have Tatooine, Ewoks in the Battle of Endor, and the Death Star 2 and the final duel. So Drew, for you, which do you think out of... We'll just take for granted that the concepts are the least... Because they are. There's only 25. But Tatooine, Ewoks and Endor, or Death Star 2 in the final duel, which one do you think has the least? Has the least? Oh, man. Uh, Let me replay the entire film in my head really quick. Um, I'm going to say, boy, I want to say the Death Star battle at the end, but I feel like that's a trick question. But there weren't that many characters there. But I'm going to go with it. Final confrontation on the Death Star significantly so there were 112 for that tatooine has 287 which i think brings oh, credence phew. to what you were saying about the the skiff characters and jabba's palace and everything like that yeah here's the interesting one ewoks and battle of endor are the most so i'm thinking that what you were thinking with like the characters in the ships and everything like that we're talking more battle of endor side of things Right? Because, like, who do you have in the the battle? You have a bunch of Ewoks, but did they make all the different Ewoks? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they had Logre and Chief Chirpa and Paplu and all those guys got their own little individual ones. If They may have come in, like, two packs, so you got Paplu and Chief Chirpa in one or something like that. Well, that's a combination we can all get behind. I mean, that's how you get a party going. <laughs> I would, I honestly would have thought that Tatooine would have the most because of the different varieties in Jabba's Palace. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder if anybody, like, well, because I know there's a handful of them. One of them is named Nikto, one of them is Klaatu, and one of them is Barada, but that might be trans, uh, trademarked. Well, I know. The Day Nik- the Earth Stood Still stories. Nikto is uh, the species that Hondo is. I remember that one because right. I, I had that toy. But, I mean,. I don't know, like, there's only one kind of uh, scout trooper, there's only one kind of storm, I just didn't feel like there was enough variety to have 389 toys, but hey, what do I know? All right. This film finds a way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's money to be made, they will make it. They will. All right, so... Next, we have Return of the to- Return of the Toys Jedi. <laughs> Return of the Toys. <laughs> Return of the Jedi Toys by character. So your character options are Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, Palpatine, Vader, Emperor's Royal Guard, uh, Jabba ah. the Hutt, 
and Admiral Akbar. So taking out the big three, so taking out Luke Han and Leia, Devin, who do you think out of Palpatine, Vader, Royal Guard, Jabba the Hutt, or Admiral Akbar had the most toys? Ooh, ooh gosh. <sighs> Give them to me again. We've got Royal Guard, we've got Akbar, we've got the Emperor, and who else is there? Vader and Jabba the Hutt. Oh, man. How many different iterations of a giant slug can you possibly have? Um, I know again, I had two go, growing up. <laughs> again, this <laughs> film finds a way. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. Um, I'm going to go Vader. I'm going to go Vader. Final answer. Oh, you should have phoned a friend. Oh, if I had one, I would have. <laughs> oh, this just took a really <laughs> dark turn. That would not have been me because I would have also said Vader. I would go Jabba the Hutt. No, it's Palpatine. What? Really? Yeah, Palpatine has 27, Vader has 26. Oh. 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 That's why he's the master. Yeah. <laughs> always always one-upping. I mean, so Luke obviously oh, is, has the most because he's at 60. This is like really more than, well, I guess Empire maybe a little bit more, but I feel like this is really a Luke-centric film. Um, Leia has 43, Han Solo has 32. Palpatine, 27. Vader, 26. The Royal Guard has 18, which is interesting. I guess you've got, like, helmets can come off and helmets don't come off and different weapons iterations. Um, mm. 15 for Jabba the Hutt. The one that surprised me was Admiral Akbar only had nine. And I guess because he's such a fan favorite, I felt like he would have had a little bit more. You thought he would have had more? I would have expected him to have less. I mean, yeah. he's, in, he's in the movie for, like, a grand total of, like, what? 75 seconds or something total but i guess he's not in it much. no he's well, not he's, but... he's also if i'm not mistaken even wearing the same thing all the time it's not like yeah. Luke who has you know different costume changes throughout things i guess just because he has such a cult following of people who are all yeah you know and, it's a trap thing yeah <laughs> and i i don't feel like again like who how many job of the huts do you really want well, I had one that came with the little can of goo. So you took his head off, you put the can in, you put his head back on, and you squished him, and it came out of his mouth. Wow. And then when, when that dried out, all cr crust, crusty and gross, I had to get a new one, but they didn't make that anymore. So I had one that didn't have the little gel squishiness in it. That's what made the difference. The gel squishiness. You can't put gel squishiness into an Akbar. It's disrespectful. I mean, <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> <dude>. <laughs> All right. Well, um, on that awkward note, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into our top three, bottom three of Return of the Jedi. Yoda will always be with you. Why didn't you tell me? You told me Vader betrayed and murdered my father. Your father? Seduced by the dark side of the Force, he ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and became Darth Vader. When that happened, the good man who was your father was destroyed. So what I told you was true, from a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Anakin was a good friend. When I first knew him, your father was already a great pilot, but I was amazed how strongly the Force was with him. 
I took it upon myself to train him as a general. I thought that I could instruct him just as well as Yoda. I was wrong. There is still good in him. He's more machine now than man. Twisted and evil. I can't do it, Ben. You cannot escape your destiny. You must face Darth Vader again. I can't kill my own father. Then the Emperor has already won. And we are back, and we are getting into our top three, bottom three for Return of the Jedi, which as I've stated, is my favorite film, so I am very excited about this particular episode. But for those of you who have not joined us before or just need a little refresher course, uh, the way our top three, bottom three works is like this. We'll go through our bottom three, uh, starting with our least egregious uh, thing about Return of the Jedi to number one, our most egregious, and that could be something we don't like, something we want to change, a way that we feel the story could have been improved, anything like that. Um, why we need more low gray in here and it should have been more like Caravan of Courage. You know, anything of that nature. And <laughs> our top three is, is I mean, it's, it's a top three. So um, the internet. Anyways, let's go ahead and start. I and Devin, that means. <laughs> Devin, since you are the guest of honor, I'm going to let you go first. What is your bottom number three? So my least egregious of the egregious list. Okay, so for anyone that has listened to Unmistakably Star Wars for any length of time, you probably know where I'm going with this. And if you haven't, then you can tune in to us sometime and hear me rant on this. The, the most <laughs> or least egregious of my top three egregious things of Return of the Jedi is, of course, the replacing of Sebastian Shaw with <gasps> Hayden Christensen. Yes! Oh, he went there early. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wanted to get it out of the way. Wanted to get out of the way. <laughs> I definitely thought you were going towards C-3PO there. Like, there was a lot of buildup, and then it just, <laughs> it's like The Last Jedi, it just did not go the way I thought. Yeah, well, you, you know me well. There's no doubt about that, but I, I had to go to Sebastian Shaw. Is it just because, you know, childhood memories of Sebastian Shaw, or what it, What in particular rubs you the wrong way? There? Uh, I mean, I think... I think that initially that's probably what it was, but I, I like for me, I want to see continuity. We we see mm. old Vader, and then all of a sudden we see a younger Anakin. I don't know. To me, that's not continuity. I know it's been explained. I'm just not buying it. I'm a hundred percent on board with that. I, Excellent. I think that's a, a that is definitely one of the changes that is not okay because, like you had said, Devin, like when when Vader is redeemed at the end and he regains his identity as Anakin Skywalker. That's who he is. He's Sebastian Shaw sitting on the floor of the Death Star thing. So when he passes away, it stands to reason that that we would see him in the ghost form. Otherwise, you know, when Obi-Wan dies on the first Death Star, why wasn't he replaced with Ewan McGregor? Yeah, and what is Luke going to think? Like, all of a sudden he sees this young guy, he'd be like, who the hell's that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, is that my uncle or something? Yeah, exactly. Oh, and you look good. (laughs) Death has been good to you. Okay, so let's play the theoretical. If Hayden Christensen was more well-received in the prequels, does your opinion of his appearance there at the end change? Um... I don't think so. And again, I'll just go to continuity. I, you know, so what I've read, at least one of the the arguments is that right, that was the last time we see Anakin before he becomes Vader. And I get that. 
I, I still just think that you go down that road, then it leaves the door open for a lot of other changes that should have happened that didn't happen. So I, I think that I get it for especially the younger viewers and wanting to show Anakin in that Jedi light side of the force image. Great. But I just, I can't buy in. I can't buy in. That's I fair. mean, the other point too, is even if you stayed with that thought of, you know, it's, it's when he basically died as Anakin Skywalker when he was younger, right. that kind of diminishes the whole point of return of the Jedi. We actually had to, I went to a Catholic high school and my junior year, we all had to watch Return of the Jedi in our religion class because what? the whole yeah the whole point was the redemption arc and how at the end he mm. finally becomes Anakin Skywalker again. So I think by mm. having mm. Sebastian Shaw, you're just showing you know if if that's your school of thought, you're saying okay we're going to show Sebastian Shaw because he died as Anakin Skywalker. He was able to come back as Anakin and have that final moment and redeem himself. Yeah, and I think that I would just say, but uh, okay, but so is is he not redeemed when Luke unveils the 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 helmet when he takes right. off oh, the so helmet? That I'm totally yeah. agreeing with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think if you're saying you know it's because he died as Anakin Skywalker, it's like yes, but he died as Anakin Skywalker as Sebastian Shaw. Yeah, as an right. old man, yeah. old Anakin. Right, exactly. That's, That's why I like this podcast. Everybody's on point. <laughs> oh, it won't last. Don't worry. It, it, calm before the storm. See, Devin, we like to lure, lure our guests into a false sense of security. Oh, and then by so the it is a it, trap. Good, good. You yes, yes. <laughs> I love knife it. knife blade is coming. Nice. <laughs> Unpleasant it's just like a reunion. I'm used to it. It's okay. Soon enough. Well, all right, Drew, I'm, we're going to throw it to you then. Give us your yeah. knife blade. What, what what you got? Number three. I'm I'm going to piggyback off of that and, and put it into a category called the weirdness of the special edition changes. Um, they are by and large not cool, and I, I don't even have a I don't. Here's the thing, I don't have a problem with the the new song Jedi Rocks in Ugh. Jabba's Palace. Ugh. I don't care. I listen, hate listen. it so much. Here's here's my point. I hate the other changes so much that I don't care about Jedi rocks being wow. added. Um, now I have, I have to ask a question in this because I had to switch editions halfway through watching it. I started watching it on the Blu-ray and then I had to switch to the DVD to finish it out. And there is a, a Doug who is not Sebulba wandering through Jabba's palace at some point in the Blu-ray. Yeah. And I is, I don't remember that ever existing before the Blu-ray. Was that new for the Blu-ray? It was because I just saw it for the first time when I watched okay. it getting ready for this. Yeah. So, so, so stay with me for this. Stay with me for a moment on this. So that was added for the Blu-ray release. And before that, we had a DVD special release. And before that, we had the VHS special edition release. So that's fine. In the space battle portion towards the end, there are still four TIE fighters that appear out of nowhere when, you know, Akbar says it's a trap. Lando says there's the whole fleet, whatever. And there's a shot from the cockpit and you see all the star destroyers and all the TIE fighters flying at the screen towards the bottom. There are four TIE fighters that just appear out of the blackness as if they were not rendered prior for like the first half a second in that frame. That hasn't been fixed since the film came out in 1983, but they're adding a Doug to Jabba's palace. They're adding new songs <laughs> to the thing. They're, 
making Ewoks blink, which is a cold and soulless decision, but they can't fix the freaking TIE fighters that come out of nowhere? I don't understand who is in charge of the list of things to change and why nobody's actually watching the film again from start to finish. <laughs> who could argue against that? I, I, it's crazy to me. Like, they just pop out of nowhere, and it's something I noticed as a kid. I was like, wait a minute. They weren't there a moment, and it's not like they just fly in from off screen. There's literally a black space, and then frame to frame, they're not there, and then they are there. <laughs> it's the I'm sorry, what? It's the secret cloaking <laughs> device that the Empire was working on until the Death Star. Uh, see, this is the stupid thing. I thought about that. I was like, <laughs> what if... But then you have to go back to Empire, where, th- where where they literally say no ship that small has a cloaking device, and they're talking about the Falcon, which is at least five times bigger than the Tie Fighters that are there. Like, come on! I would say my life was so good before you pointed that out. Find the freeze frame; it will <laughs> drive you crazy every time. And I don't, I don't know if want, I'm... <laughs> I don't want to go crazy. Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> I would say but, out of the the three original films, the special the, the the changes they've done to this one is probably the worst. Oh yeah, There's, and that's saying something because the A New Hope ones are like horrifically bad now, especially they yeah. have not aged well at all. That Jabba's palace, or not Jabba's palace, but Jabba encountering Han and Chewbacca at the docking bay, it looks like some seventeen year old put it together not even a 17 year old like my kids would have been able to do it at the same same quality as that one nowadays it's so rough but then you look at like return of the jedi like you said they changed so much of it they changed the jabba's palace music they changed the whole and ewok celebration music at the end which isn't a bad change i don't think it, it's okay it's no it's no yub nub but it works but man some of the visuals just could use some real updating and they could really go back and clean some of these things up some of the changes in a new hope were good like in the um in the prison sequence when they're busting leia out of her jail cell mm. they redid a lot of the the shots that show the hallway the back hallway because in the original version it was just a static painting that was on set so when you looked at it from a different angle the perspective was wrong going down the hallway. So they fixed all those perspectives, which looks great. You can't even tell there's anything different in it in the new releases. But man, are there some really bummer ones here in Return of the Jedi. And with that, I'll, I'll, I'll stop yelling about it. I finally <laughs> figured out what we can do to unite fandom. Remember the special editions? Well, n- no, we need, they need to go in and fix all those little things and then release them and call them the Disney editions. Lord, I don't know about that. <laughs> That'll get everybody. And, and take out Jedi rocks while they're at it, is what you meant <laughs> Mostly I take out Jedi could, rocks. If we could just redo Size Noodles, I think that sequence has improved a hundredfold. Like, she, Size Noodles' character in that sequence is really, pr- like, a problem. It's bad. It's not cool. Awful. The Yuzum guy doesn't bother me nearly as much as Size Noodles' lips coming way at the screen like bad 3D or something. Yeah, because wasn't that for the 3D? They were working on 3D technology at the time? I think they, well, they put it in the 97 special edition in the theater. So we were all sitting there in the theaters and her lips started attacking everybody and it got weird. <laughs> um, but it was probably preemptively done to say that one day they'd like to put it into 3D. Although, I don't know, 3D technology hadn't come back around yet until mid-2000s, so maybe 10 years later or so. Yeah, I don't know I when guess. the Phantom Menace 3D edition was released. 
I'll have to look that up real quick. All right. Well, while you're doing that, Lindsay, we're going to throw it to you. What's your number three? All right. So my number three, I actually struggled to put on this list because I don't know what I would do to change it. But for me, that final sequence always just felt a little corny, you know, and and I know we want to end on that uplifting note and see how everyone's celebrating across the galaxy. But there was something always (laughs) about that just real final shot of everyone just sitting and posing to the The camera shot. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this isn't arrested development. You know, we don't need them to like turn and talk to the camera or anything. We don't need that narrator all of a sudden. And it, it just feels weird to me that in no point in the other three movies do we have anyone breaking that fourth wall and now we have them all like lined up for their Christmas card. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they cheated it really well in A New Hope where they had everybody standing in front of the crowd who was actually applauding for them. Yeah. So it made sense like what you were seeing from the from all the pilots and the technicians Yeah, perspective. it was still part of the story. Yeah, I like mm-hmm. that one. And Empire ends really well. You see their backs, as, and you can really get that sense of something has changed and something is different. Oh, but for sure. So. I mean, Empire it was also easier because it wasn't really the end. Yeah. You know, this... And, and again, that's why I struggle to put this in my bottom three because I don't know what I would do. Mm. But it's not that. See... What we don't know, and I'm sure they're going to come out with a book or a comic of it soon, but there's actually somebody on like the other side of the camera with their iPhone taking pictures <laughs> so they can put it on space Twitter. That's what's happening. Canon. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. how It's right there in the film, guys. It's right there. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Those are your words, not mine. Uh, <laughs> all right. So... If we're talking about things that just kind of rub you the wrong way, my number three is the skiff fight scene. I <gasps> what? I it is horribly executed. What? It's the lightsaber battles across the OT are great. The fight scenes are great, but even in this movie, the Battle of Endor, I feel like is really good. But this is supposed to make Luke look really epic and like he's grown so much since the last film. But his sword swings are sloppy and uncoordinated. He reacts instead of being in control. Boba Fett, who I don't personally care about, but is supposed to be this big intimidating person from Empire, becomes a joke. And then you have the... It it just feels like a comedy rather than a swashbuckling action scene. And (sighs) watching it... This time, with more of a critical eye, I realize why I tend to not be so engaged in this because it. You're the martial arts guy too. Well, yeah, and this is something where if it was done well, you would absolutely love. So it makes sense that you would you would notice this too. And that's the thing. Like, I I saw an image I don't know on Twitter or something, but it's when Luke kicks uh, one of the guards off. And he doesn't actually make contact with him. And the guy just basically falls down. And that made me really look at it this time. And I was just like, it just, Luke is just swinging wildly. He has no form to anything. He, he doesn't, he doesn't look like he has any, uh, any training perhaps. But it's, he, he hasn't. He is presented in the beginning of the film as having grown and becoming more of a Jedi. Later in the film, Yoda says he's already has everything. He's already learned what he needs to know, but yet 
he, I mean, yeah, he goes and he wrecks shop, but it just does the the thing that they're trying to tell us and what they show us on screen don't add up. Mm, counterpoint. So you're telling me that that kick was not just a force kick? I thought it was intentional that he didn't actually make contact. <laughs> See, that changes the whole thing. Now we have context. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I'll piggyback a little bit because here's my question to you on that, Brandon, is is he still not in control? Obviously, he had the forethought to have his hilt loaded into R2, which would seem that he's still in control, even though maybe he doesn't rush in like the badass that we wanted him to be. But that still, I think, kind of tips the hat to him being in control. I just mean more along like the lines of the choreography and things don't yeah. present him as especially with the the retrospective of the prequels and what we know Jedi can do um and even looking at like this the sequel trilogy and people who aren't as, you know, trained for as long like Kylo Ren and Rey they still the choreography is better and so the story that it tells with the fight scene and the story that it's telling us with the actual story and the plan and everything that Luke's going through, which we'll get to later, I think the hilt and all that stuff, absolutely great. And and we'll talk more about that later. But in terms of just like how Luke fights and how the whole battle plays out as a comedy rather than a great action scene, I think diminishes our characters going into Act 2. Okay. Well, I... Yeah, go go, I'm, Drew, because I want to. I'll come back with my number two. It's going to play into this, but go ahead. Oh man, we're going to have to save mine for the back half of the show. <laughs> um, two things, to, and I, I, I think the first thing I want to tackle is the adventure theme um, of it, because I think that there's a lot more channeling of the old-fashioned like uh, Adventures of Robin Hood movie from like the 30s. Um, the this is like this is where what swashbuckling would have looked like if those films had carried on their traditions today. He literally swings across the chasm just like he does in A New Hope with Leia hanging on to him. Um, in terms of his technical prowess as a fighter, the dude blocks two blaster bolts with his lightsaber, which one we haven't seen anybody do up to that point. But two, this is the only this is the second time on screen he's ever fought anybody with his lightsaber. So I think he's improved pretty dramatically. Um, to his levels of control and his uh, aggressiveness, I want to come back to that in the back half of things because I think that speaks to something different. But also, Brandon, to your point about we've seen what Jedi can do in the prequel, I think part of the point of Yoda's training is to do it differently now with Luke than he had done with his uh, with the Jedi Council and the Jedi Temple for 900 years. I think he's trying – Yoda – knew his approach needed to change dramatically from top to bottom. And so perhaps there was a different focus and Yoda was more concerned with his tapping into and accessing the force rather than fighting off droidicas in the hallway and some smoke. I don't disagree with any of that. What I'm saying is clip that again, (laughs) my ringtone. (laughs) My thing is the way that it is shown doesn't seem to back that up. I mean, yes, he blocks the, the the shots and things like that. And yes, Yoda's training was very different. And and you guys know my opinion on Jedi as warriors and, and where that causes issue. But I'm saying, like, if you look at his swings, he's reaching, he's opening his entire body up. It just, 
it's basic yeah. things that a 13-year-old girl who's taken a self-defense class would know to do, and he does them wrong. And it just yeah, I'm sure. Me. I'm sure he took his busy time out of farming moisture to go to the local karate shop down in Mos Eisley. <laughs> hey, and took some. Uh, that sounds like a Jedi. Old Luke would have done. But you know what? I think the big disconnect, though, then Brandon, is the level of bravado with which he does it. He because when he does these awful kicks and swings, he he does it with such confidence where he feels like, or you get the impression he feels like he is the greatest warrior of all time. And he is so good at hand to hand combat. And we, as the audience were like, mm, this isn't that impressive. I agree. And I, again, I want to piggyback off of that when we get to the top. All right. All right. Well, Devin, you mentioned your number two, so I'm going to throw it to you next. Yeah, my number two plays right into this, and I don't know if this is the first case, but it's certainly one of the biggest cases of bad guy having a re- really lame end to the story arc. Uh, um, Boba Devin, Fett Devin, and the way- we're, we're talking about <laughs> Return of the Jedi, not the last Jedi in uh, Phasma. Uh, <laughs> ouch, ouch. Yes, as I look at my wall of Phasma here, this is where my heart gets torn out. Um yeah, I think the way that Boba Fett goes out um, is not only bad to begin with, but because they go back in 97 and put him in A New Hope, it builds the character up even more. And to just go out like I, I cannot stand how they dealt with that character after the, the buildup. Hmm. I because he doesn't die. I That's mean, all I'm I say. can't argue because at the same time I've never been a big Boba Fett person, and Brandon said it before earlier about himself, but I'm kind of in that same boat where, to me, it never so much bothered me because I never had a big connection to him. But as a Phasma fan who has a big connection to Phasma and felt it in the Last Jedi, I can totally understand how this makes your list. Yeah, and I wouldn't say I had a big connection to Boba Fett. I just think that, you know, you, you talk to like some of the the authors that you guys have interviewed and stuff as far as you know what makes a great villain, and he's just built up not to the level of Vader, the Emperor, of course, but I think with the armor and of certainly now that all that we have the backstory with the clones and Jango Fett and all that stuff. I just think, my goodness, for this character that's been part of the storyline for so long to go out in such a weenie way mm. um, is just horrible. Have they yet to recanonize his surviving the Sarlacc pit? Has that been addressed yet since the takeover? It's been it's touched not on. It, um, it was yeah. teased in one of the aftermath interludes. Oh, that might be why I've forgotten it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's. Be- oh, doesn't like Dengar drag a corpse through the the sand or something is that what someone, it is no someone shows up wearing his armor on Tatooine yeah. and they're explaining how they found it by a sarlacc pit oh maybe they're bringing back Jodo cast oh, I hate those aftermath books <laughs> so problematic <laughs> yeah I, I mean I think the the biggest problem with Boba Fett is that you especially going back and and putting him in a new hope and then the way that you present him in uh, in Empire, you even though you don't really see him do anything on screen, he has an air about him. And then you just 
make him a joke in this movie. Um, and it just, it doesn't make sense. At least Phasma went down fighting, you know, like, well, that's the thing. Look, it, had Chewie just picked him up and thrown him in the Sarlacc, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> it's the blind man accidentally knocking him down and the, the, right, the right. little, ah, that goes with it. Just all of it's bad. Yeah. Yes. Mm, I agree completely. It's rough. I have no argument against any of that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then. I'm Drew, not saying I agree. I'm just saying I don't have an argument against it. <laughs> uh, I want to clip that and put that as my ringtone. <laughs> Drew, I'm sending it to you next. Okay, this is tough because I'm staring at my number one and number two, and I still don't know if I have them in the right order. Um, I'm going to go with, okay, I'm, I'm going to nail it down here. My number two of the bottom three is that Harrison Ford has no interest in being in this film, and you can see it every time he's on screen. Mm. Um, he, we, I think we, everybody's pretty familiar with the history where Harrison Ford wanted Han Solo to die at the end of Empire. He wasn't really interested in coming back, did it for the paycheck, which is fine because they're paying him more than me. Um, he wasn't interested. They didn't, they didn't know quite what to do with the character. There wasn't a, a really strong arc to give him, and he phones it in the entire film. And all you have to do is watch his, his, his sequences on Endor just to kind of really dig into that. I think his best moments are definitely in Jabba's palace, especially when he is um, being thawed out from the Carbonite. I think it's a great sequence. I love, I love that with him and Leia and the way they're brought together and they have to confront Jabba together. is a really cool sequence. But that two-minute sequence is probably the only part of that film he is actually invested in. And performing to the top of his or to the best of his abilities. I think the rest of it is just a lot of mugging for the camera. I think it's just him trying to get through the day. He doesn't want to be there. And it really makes that character suffer, my opinion. See, I would say it's not the it, it's not Harrison, it's the lack of content. Like I feel like he executes the material that he has perfectly well. I just don't feel like there was much to tell us about Han in this movie. I mean, you're you're not wrong that there's there's definitely it's light on content for him as a character. I definitely agree with that. But I think like l- that Mark Hamill is giving it everything he's got. He's trying to play that role um, to the best of his ability. I think Carrie Fisher's doing a good job with what she has as well. But but Harrison, I don't think is doing. I don't think he's just even trying with what they are giving him. Like the whole, I think the the pinnacle of this is when they are confronted with the Ewoks for the first time, and and he's you know bickering back and forth with C three PO. Why don't you use your divine influence and get us out of this? You know those sequences right there. I mean, I think there's a way to do those lines and to play that scene that fits with the rest of what's going on because everybody else is taking it relatively seriously, both from an acting perspective as well as from a character perspective. Except for him. And I don't know if the magic of Han Solo exists only in A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, but I don't think it shows up here at all. I don't want to say too much because this actually goes against one of my top three. Um, But I agree more with you, Drew, than I do Brandon in that it is Harrison's portrayal of him. I think we actually get, if we look at it on paper some really good stuff from Han's character. Um, And it would be in more of that phoned in delivery. Mm. 
And again, I don't want to get too much in, but you know what? Spoiler alert. My number three on my top three it actually is Han's development. Because oh. this is the first time that we're seeing how he would act if he's not running away from something. In New Hope and in Empire, he's constantly going against what he knows to be right because he has this bounty on his head and because he's always on the run and he's trying to escape something. Mm. Now we take that out of him and we even give him the added connections between Luke and Leia and we get to see how he actually would have or at least could have acted this whole time. And I think because of that, we actually see more of certain character development from Han than we do even Luke. I'd be interested to hear what, if, if the rest of like how you fully flesh that out, um, because I think that that change of him running away actually occurs in Empire. But I'm, I'm more interested to see here the rest of your take on that. The only last thing I have, and this is this is as petty as I could possibly be for Han Solo is his blaster pistol. Um, I tried to see if I could figure this out after I was watching the film because it bothered me so much when I was watching it. He uses the same blaster pistol in this film as he does in the other two, which you'd kind of expect. Except the problem is Vader takes his blaster from him on Cloud City. He, you know, Han shoots at Vader. Mm. Vader stops the bolts. He yanks the, the blaster out of Han's hands. And it flies across the table and he utters the immortal line, we would be honored if you would join us. Um, but I, I got confirmation that the prop is the same. It's the same DL-44 blast deck. So it's not even like a, they didn't even try and make a different model in universe. And then I looked on the most godforsaken place of information, Wikipedia, um, which has a lengthy entry about his blaster pistol. I guess I shouldn't be surprised at that. But there's a great line that says this. And it's kind of describing the history of the blaster pistol as if it were a character. Vader, using his force powers, subsequently took Solo's DL-44 from his hands. Not long after that, Han Solo was frozen in carbonite and taken by Fett to collect on the bounty set by Jabba the Hutt. Here's the money shot. Solo's trusted blaster ended up in the hands of his rebel allies, allowing their escape from Cloud City. I'm sorry, what? You mean to tell me when Lando and... Leia and Chewbacca were running away. They stopped by the dining room table and like, oh, Vader, put the blaster down. Quick, go get that. I, I mean, just... Leia knows how important it is to, to him. Like, he got it from Beckett, and she knew Which that. Which Lando would not know about. But Leia would. Han would have opened up to her. When he was frozen in carbonite? Well, before that, duh. They barely even knew each other before that. <laughs> Drew, you're getting dangerously close to wrecking my childhood. I just want to throw that in there. <laughs> well, welcome to Clashing Sabers. It's been fun. I warned you about this ahead of time. <laughs> now, this is that false sense of security Lindsay was telling you about. <laughs> that sharp pain in your kidneys, that's me. Yes, uh, there it is. I shall call thee Drew. Uh, no, that's completely fair. I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one. So really what I'm saying is this movie gets a zero out of 10 because it doesn't explain the blaster pistol. <laughs> Worst movie ever. All right. Disney Lindsay. should remake the film. All right. My number two. Um, it's, it's a little deeper than this, but the way I'm going to characterize it is that when Yoda dies and just disappears, Luke does not freak the F out. <laughs> <laughs> because that is the natural reaction when something like that happens. And 
really when I when I think about it deeper, because yes, I know that you know he he watched as it happened to Ben. He might have maybe expected it, but the same way Drew talks about the DL forty four as being a character, that's how I think of the Force. And to me, this movie had such a good opportunity to really move the force forward as a character and explain it and develop it and start to answer some of those mysteries. And instead, we just watch this old mysterious species man thing disappear in front of us. And the main character who really should be acting on our behalf is kind of just like, eh, all right, let me go outside and talk to a ghost. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I need something. I need a little bit of a reaction here, please. But if you, if you think about the journey that he's gone on from A New Hope to that point, like, is seeing Yoda disappear the most, you know, amazing on thing? Screen, on screen, yes. Off screen and through what we have in the comics and now through Legends, and I expect we start to build up again in the future in canon. No, of course that's not the but, most. I mean, even in the in the movies, you've seen, you've seen on screen, yeah, on screen you've seen people come back from the dead with ghosts. You've mm-hmm. seen a little green frog lift an X wing out of a swamp. Like I just feel like nothing would really be in that realm of like, oh, that, but. Each each time that happened, Luke responded the way I think the audience responded. You know, when oh, when he first started hearing Ben, he was confused and he didn't know what to make of it. When he saw Yoda lift the X-Wing, he was absolutely shocked that something like that could happen, especially from a little green frog thing. And this is, I think, the one time that Luke really doesn't act on our behalf. But that's a really interesting point. Holy smokes. In this movie, he's not supposed to be us anymore. He's supposed to be who we should be striving to become. So coming to terms with things that are beyond your understanding is something that he has to do in this film. And I think that's just a a part of it. That's a solid point. I I just need... I think a little bit more of that because again, the underlying issue really is also that this raised more questions about the force than it did answer it. And since it was at the time, the final movie and all we were going to get, uh, I would have just liked, I don't want to say more closure, but a few more answers and a little bit more to grasp onto and say, okay, this is what the force is. This is how it acts in everyone, you know, because now we, we open it up to, all right, if it's a light side thing, we had Obi-Wan disappear. We had Yoda disappear. If Darth Vader really did become Anakin, how come he didn't disappear? Uh, That's a fair question. Because he was more machine now than man. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I, I do have I have a question though for you, Lindsay, because yeah. right after that is when he's outside with R2 and he says, I can't do this alone. And he and Obi-Wan appears to him again. And I think in that sequence, he you can tell he's upset, but he controls it. And he says, you know, he says, why didn't you tell me? And I feel in that moment that he does have very strong emotions, but he's doing his best to kind of keep them under control. Mm. Um, so my question is, number one, do you read that scene the same way? And number two, 
if he is demonstrating control in that scene, do you think he could be demonstrating the same kind of control when Yoda dies? Yes and no, respectively. I do think he is demonstrating some control and trying to understand a little bit more and trying to grow as a person. But the scene where Yoda dies, there doesn't even seem to be a flicker of shock or okay. what the hell just happened. Okay. Mm. All right. I guess. That's my number terrible. two, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Brandon, why do you like this movie so much? <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. So are we on our number? Well, no, I have no, I think you have to give us your number two. So All what right, is your so... second most offensive? Well, I'm uh, actually going to stay um, in the scene that Drew just brought up. Uh, which is the telling the not showing that happens in this movie, particularly with uh, that conversation there between Luke and Obi-Wan. I think they kind of created a trap for themselves with the I am your father moment and felt that they needed to have something surprising in here. And that's how we get Luke and Leia being siblings, which I love, but you, uh, I mean, you know, it's not planned before. And so you have this moment where Obi-Wan has to sit and give Luke a history lesson. And while all the information that we get there is really good and really worthwhile. And I think, it, I think having Luke and Ben talking about whether Luke should kill Vader or not is important. I feel like, they're just telling us a whole lot of information because they haven't had a chance to tell us in the first two movies and they don't have time to figure out how to show us in this movie. And it just kind of is boring for all the, the great information oh, that it has. Geez. Boring. He says, go ahead, <laughs> but it's the best one. It's boring, but it's the best one. <laughs> I didn't say all of it is boring. I said, that conversation is just kind of it's kind of dry. It, it, I I don't feel like it's Sir Alec Guinness's best performance. I don't, there's just not a lot of emotion there. And save for Luke standing up and saying I can't kill him, I can't kill my own father. I don't really feel like there's much that you get out of that. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm going to talk about this scene in approximately 3 to 5 minutes, so I'm going to withhold my <laughs> <Okay>. comments. Okay. <laughs> All right, so let's circle around to our worst thing about the best Star Wars movie. Take it away, Devin. <laughs> well, you know, when you're coming up with lists like this, you always have to consider, like, several variables, right? Are we looking at it through the eyes of the 1983 movie viewer, or are we taking it under consideration of what we have now that gives us new insight to things that happened in 1983 when it was released? So my number one is actually... What I found, even as preteen, uh, egregious, and that was uh, another super weapon. Um, was just not a fan of the second unfinished, unfinished Death Star, and of course now we understand that Palpatine kind of had some foresight into why he wanted that to, uh, you know, keep planetary systems under control. Why he was able to go off and search for other things, and that and that makes sense, but. Ah, this is actually something that kind of strings its way into the sequel trilogy, in my opinion, too. It's like, can we not get past the super weapon thing? I mean, I'm going to have to agree with you there. And particularly now in the new canon, and we have Thrawn developing this TIE Defender program that was going Mm. up against the Death Star in terms of, like, Mm. which one was going to get backed. 
I feel like Palpatine would be like, mm, you know, the first Death Star, that didn't turn out so great. How about we build this legion of ships that have shields and hyperspace? And like, it, it's just like, why? Mm. It, I mean, not only that, at least uh, Starkiller Base is some kind of variant. This is literally just the same thing. Right. Yeah. But it's bigger. <laughs> that makes it's it better. Bigger. Yeah. <laughs> it's fully armed and operational. It doesn't have like decks 300 through 700, but it's got a big gun on the front. <laughs> pew, pew. Okay. I, st- I stand corrected. I have yeah. changed my mind. <laughs> Get that junk out of here. <laughs> I do like visually, I like the second Death Star better, the, the unfinished portion of it. Uh, mm. It's it's it is beautiful. It really be is. <laughs> and everything here's the thing. Everything they do on the Death Star is great. Like the the Vader entrance, the Palpatine, all of it is great. But yeah, just let's build another super weapon. And I think maybe if we didn't have Star Killer base, we kind of go, all right, whatever, like second Death Star. But now that we have like three of them and they've all been blown up in pretty much the same way. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like yeah. if we get one in episode nine, <laughs> there's going to be so many problems. It's going to ruin my adulthood. I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious from, from each of you guys though, which is a more compelling, uh, we'll call it trench run or core run new hope or return of the Jedi. Ooh. I personally always like New Hope a little bit better yeah. because our main character was really in that. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, the Falcon was in that trench run in Return of the Jedi. But, I, you know, we didn't feel the way about Lando that we did about Luke. <laughs> this is uh, true. Yeah, I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote Return of the Jedi uh, has the better Death Star destruction sequence. I think that there's a lot more visually interesting things going on, like the way it plays with space and depth, mm-hmm. um, especially when they're flying through the very tight corridors and then they come out into the wide open space with the reactor thing in the middle. And then when they're when both Wedge, the hero of the rebellion, and Lando are trying to escape, you know, you see that tiny spark of an explosion, but then the whole room erupts in fire and it chases them down the hallway with the the white lights and the very straight. Fa- pa- uh, pattern fashion i think is really interesting to see it creates a real sense of of dynamic movement and which ratchets up the tension it's more exciting and wedge antilles destroys another death star so i i'm gonna go with that because (laughs) we may not have felt for lando the way we felt for luke but i felt for wedge the way i felt for luke Wow. I I mean, you fell for Wedge the way you fell for Wedge. Yeah, that's exactly true. (laughs) That's exactly true. I think visually Return of the Jedi is much more appealing, but in in emotional weight, and I think this is the the fault of having a second Death Star is it doesn't carry as much weight because you're like, they're just going to destroy it again. I think the trench run in A New Hope is more emotional, um, and I connect with that one more. But in terms yeah. of like cinema, yeah, Return of the Jedi is definitely. Yeah, I def- I, Brandon, I'm definitely going to grant you that because the 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 A New Hope trench run is more about a personal victory where Luke is able to 
tap into the force to let go of his you know conscious self and trust in the instincts that the force brings him whereas the victory above endor is just a strictly uh strategic defeat of the empire so it doesn't come with the same kind of personal stakes at least in the destruction of the of the battle station as it does in a new hope although it's kind of emblematic of the personal struggles that are occurring elsewhere you know it, it kind of exemplifies what luke is going through on board the death star at the moment of rushing into the belly of the beast confronting the main thing and then trying to escape with what little life that you have so Mm. i I think that a new hope wraps all those elements into the singular event of luke piloting down the trench uh but return of the jedi blows that out onto uh into different paths which they add up to an equal level of value but i think that's because individually in return of the jedi the three paths that they're trying to complete the battle on the ground in Endor in space and then Luke and Vader inside the Death Star are individually not as strong as they are combined. So the sum mm. of those parts is exactly what they are in A New Hope. So that's that's my opinion. Yeah, I like it. All right, so we are on... Drew, are we on you now? Yeah, so let's go back to Dagobah real quick. Because I'm re-watching it this time, I noticed two particular things. One that's going to come up in the, in the top portion of our lists l- later on. But I also noticed this thing is that Obi-Wan Kenobi is the most defeatist ghost I have ever seen in the history of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it really bothers me how defeatist he is here. Um, he has to give the whole certain point of view excuse saying, well, really, this is the way I saw it. So your opinion doesn't matter. He wasn't able to train Anakin as well as he thought he was wrong. Uh, the emperor has already won. Um, I think he does a lot of Brandon, kind of like what you were talking about where you were bothered that it was more expository than demonstrative. Um, I think the problem is how he's explaining things is just like, we've already lost. This is all hopeless, and the only reason I'm telling you is because you're going to be dead in a few hours. Um, He doesn't think Luke can win. He has no confidence in Luke's abilities to to defeat Vader at all. He doesn't think that Anakin is able to be redeemed. He's more machine now than man. Um, Luke's feelings could possibly be made to serve the Emperor. So he says, if you go and confront Vader, you're either going to die a hero or you're going to become the new villain. You know, it's very Harvey Dent, Dark Knight, you know, mentality here of uh, that same kind of um, fatalism. And, and it's really depressing, especially when we don't see that kind of qualities in the character in earlier installments. You know, he's very optimistic in uh, A New Hope where he says, I'm going to teach you the ways of the Jedi. It can be done. You are learning. You are taking your first steps into a larger universe. It doesn't really line up with a lot of what we see from Obi-Wan in the prequels where, you know, we see, we, we see all of the Phantom Menace where he learns from Qui-Gon how to be more idealistic and how to really dive into that and own it and make it work for you. He, you know, part of the Phantom Menace is him putting down that legalism and taking up the idealism from Qui-Gon. And I don't know if that's a lesson that the character is supposed to forget somehow after he died. Uh, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, the whole afterlife situation for Force users is more ambiguous than we probably would like. Um, but man, did it really strike me hard this time that Luke is meeting face-to-face with his his mentor, and his mentor is like, it's already over. 
and it's all your fault. Good job, kid. And man, that's really depressing. And I don't know. This is the only kind of rationale I can I can kind of come up with. Maybe it's designed that way so that Luke can stand up to him and say, "No, I will not give in to your same kind of fatalistic approach." I don't know if there's credence to that, but no, that's Obi Wan th- did not win any fans on this repeat viewing for me. That's how I've always read it. Is yeah, Luke has to to go against the the mentor, right? That's part of the hero's journey is to to forge your own path. Um, and so you kind of, you're stuck with Kenobi and what you can do with him in this film. But I think if we're trying to look at like canonically what's going on at this time, Obi-Wan believes that Luke is the, the chosen one. Right. And of course there's arguments to be made both ways, but if he, he's in this mindset of the Jedi of old, where the chosen one is supposed to bring down the Sith, and he's still in that limited point of view, um, and, and in doing so, he limits what he thinks Luke is supposed to be able to do. So when Luke, as the chosen one, is not able to do, or is not willing to do, rather, the one thing that the chosen one is supposed to do, which is bring an end to the Sith, which would come in the form of destroying Darth Vader, you know, he he feels. I mean, he's going to have to live eternity. <laughs> with knowing that he failed two chosen ones, I think. So there's a lot of weight on him in that situation that I don't think he was ever really able to handle. You know, like the prequels, he got a lot thrown on his shoulders and it didn't go his way. Here he gets a second chance and I think he feels as though he's failed again because Luke is not able to do the one thing, really, that they were training him to do. Hmm. I'd be curious, too. I mean, when we see Anakin slash Vader and Obi-Wan face off at the end of Revenge of the Sith, and then, of course, we see them together again in A New Hope, I'd be curious into the mindset of Obi-Wan where if, hey, I've gone toe-to-toe with this guy, and then if you're going to just walk away, it's not just so much about Obi-Wan feeling like he's let the galaxy down or whatever, but I wonder if there's a part of Obi-Wan that also has this voice inside his head that says – I know what it's like to fight this guy. And so if you're not going to train harder than I trained to get to where I was, then there's no chance that you're going to be able to go toe to toe with him. Well, and he's still looking at Jedi winning the day at the end of a lightsaber. And that's Mm. what Luke is, is going to learn. And uh, I mean, everybody knows what my number one is going to be. So who are we kidding? Um, (laughs) But like that's the point of this movie is that that's not what a Jedi should be that, you know, that's, that's the real to me, you know, there's the debate over is, is the return of the Jedi Anakin or Luke to me, return of the Jedi means the return to what the Jedi should be, which is people who don't win through violence, you know, mm-hmm. um, who, who aren't fighting, you know, as generals in wars, you know, and, and, and things like mm-hmm. that. And so I think, you know, you have, the the old hat who is stuck in in his old ways and can't get out of it i mean devin i'm sure you experienced this as a younger teacher you know there there's the older teachers who are i've always done it this way and you're like that's not how things work anymore like people have Mm. cell phones like let's be realistic about where we are and he's (laughs) he's not able to do that you know he's not able to understand the context he's not able to understand what it's like to have a son or what it's like to have a father and and that's not 
necessarily a character flaw. That's just the reality of the the way in which he was raised and the the life experience that he has. You mm. know, Luke, and, and that's one of the benefits of getting Luke once he's had life experience is how he can connect in this interpersonal way that the Jedi of old were never able to do. There was always mm. this disconnect between these characters and the thing that makes Qui-Gon really the greatest Jedi to me, um, or at least one of the greatest Jedi is his ability to connect with other people. Uh, we see it with Mm. Jar Jar. We see it with Anakin. We see it even later with Padme. Um, when she opens herself up to him and and Queen Shadow kind of talks about how she always kind of felt that connection to him. It's just interesting that, Obi-Wan, I do think, Drew, what you were saying earlier about Obi-Wan is kind of hopeful in the first two films, and now he's all down on his luck, but I think that's because he feels like he failed once again. Mm-hmm. I think it's really more of a failure, not of Obi-Wan's character, or the way they they kind of put him on that trajectory, but it's almost more of a storytelling failure i would say because you need someone who doesn't believe in luke so that we understand the stakes of this yeah otherwise it's just luke is you know he completed his training he's gonna go do this great thing oh wonderful hero steps in and saves the day but now we have the mentor saying eh, better not then we have leia later on saying eh, better not you know you're, you're better <laughs> off just running away um but but because we're planting those seeds now and the people that we trust do doubt him, the stakes become more real and it's all that more impressive when Luke is able to go in and defeat him. So I totally get how, you know, the defeatist ghost is your number one flaw of this and it makes sense. I just don't think it's a character flaw. I think it really is a storytelling flaw. I think you, you might be onto something, but I think the reason that it bothers me, within still within that context as a story device, is that they gave it to Obi Wan to play the role of the doubter, because it's completely opposite of what he did in Empire. I mean, he he sends Luke to Dagobah to get training. He appears to Yoda and Luke and convinces Yoda to take him on, and he even shows up one more time when Luke is is leaving to go to Bespin. And while they do try to talk him out of it. Uh, as Luke is pulling away, both Yoda and Obi-Wan are giving him the last bits of information and, and advice that they possibly can, boil down as, as small as they can, so that maybe Luke would listen to this one last thing. They're in his corner. At least Obi-Wan is in Luke's corner for all of Empire. And in fact, he's the only one who spends that much time being as supportive to Luke as he is. But then when we get to Return of the Jedi, now it's flipped somehow. Now, Yoda, when it seems to be when it is revealed that he was not completely honest and open with Luke about anything, that I don't know if we're supposed to understand from, again, from a story and character development perspective, that underneath Kenobi's um, supposed support was actually this deep layer of doubt that Luke was not going in the right direction. I mean, think about the reason they didn't want Luke to go fight Vader on Bespin was because Vader so desperately outmatched him. Like, there was no way this kid who had never fought anybody with a lightsaber before, had barely even picked it up, 
was going to stand up against one of the greatest swordsmen in the Jedi Order. Like, they were fearful for his life, and yet they were still doing what they could to to help prepare him for such a confrontation. Luke survives that encounter, and while he, he makes it out with significant psychological damage, having been blindsided by the truth revealed there on the gantry way, that ends up being... I don't know. Maybe the, the what finally pushes Obi Wan from support to doubt, and I don't like that they put that that kind of, you know, uh, bumping up against Luke's what Luke wants to see happen. He wants to see Vader redeemed. He is my father. There is still good in him. We could save him, and they put the doubt in the mouth of Obi Wan. When I mean, Lindsay, you said it yourself. Leia says, "Just run away. It's not worth it." We could have put that in Leia's character, and 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 it would have maintained Obi Wan's. You know, the same kind of characteristics we had learned from him in the past probably would have damaged Leia's character irreparably as well. But that's a different story, I suppose, since we don't have that. I don't know. You guys aren't wrong that there needs to be somebody who says he cannot do it. So that way he's forced to rely on himself. And as audience members, we want to see him support. And that kind of, Lindsay, like you said, heightens the stakes there a bit. But man, I, it's, I feel like it's disappointing to have that come from Obi-Wan after we spent two movies with him being the old wizened father that we all wish we had had. But, you know, he's playing the role Qui-Gon did. It was like, we all want Qui-Gon for dad. Now we all want Obi-Wan for dad. But now at the very end of thing, dad's kicking us out of the house saying you were never any good to me. But, well, okay, that's a little extreme. But I would say, like, that's part of the point is we're supposed to feel let down by Obi-Wan because he has been this beacon of hope the whole time and now luke has to step into that and take it into the future and he has to do it in a new way so there's there's definitely a lot of of ways to read that scene you know and and it is a departure for from what we saw in a new hope and and empire but i think there's definitely possibilities behind the reason all right let's go to Lindsay. you're up you're number one. All right. Um, mine, and I, I want to be clear here. It's <laughs> not that I don't like either of these things. But to me, this is really, it feels like two separate movies. Because the whole thing is very disjointed. In that instead of having this really fluid three-act structure, instead of what we have is like a part one, Tatooine, part two, Endor, and there's no real flow from one to the other to the point where sometimes, I mean, nine times out of ten, when I think Return of the Jedi, I think Endor. And then when I remember the whole sequence on Tatooine and Jabba's Palace, I'm like, oh, that is the same movie. You know, if if it were TV shows, I would think of it as like, okay, season one was when they were on Tatooine, season two was when they were on Endor. And this is just like, all thrown into one and it just feels very disjointed to me i can't disagree with you there i'll give you that yeah i i've got a small through line that puts the movie together but by and large you're absolutely right like this this one definitely has some structural issues from like a screenwriting and and cohesion standpoint i think i mean it's a lot of fun I think it's certainly it the is. most fun of the movies. I like what happens on Tatooine, and I like yeah. what happens on Endor, and I, I enjoy that little intermission on Dagobah, but it's, it's there's different. The, I, 
pieces. Yeah, you got you wish that there was more purpose and m- yeah. more more things linking all all of those different segments together rather than just chronology. But yeah, again, it is it's not a fluid movie. It's one of it's those not. traps that they got caught in because of Empire. You know, you put Han in Carbonite, you have to show how he got out of it, and of course they put him in Carbonite primarily because they didn't know if Harrison was going to come back for for right. the last mm-hmm. film. So it's one of those weird like. On off screen affects what happens on the screen things, and you just kind of have to make the best of it. But it does definitely feel like two two different movies that I like both of them equally well. But yeah, definitely two different things, two yeah. different seasons, if you will. I like I like that analogy you put, Lindsay. For me, my number yep, one. This out, Brandon. And and this is gonna put things into perspective about how much I love this movie and how. Even though I complained about the other things, they're very nitpicky in my opinion. My number one most egregious thing is the stinking addition to the Sarlacc pit. I hate the little tentacle Venus flytrap <laughs> oh, looking no. thing. It is so <laughs> bad. I hated it the first time I saw it. I hated it the hundredth time. I hated it when I was watching it right now as we're recording. I hate it. It's stupid. That's it. I know it's dumb. <laughs> I know it's petty, but that is the one special edition change that has always just, ugh. There was something intimidating about the Sarlacc. It's just this pit, and you're going to be digested for a thousand years, and, and what even is going on in there? And I think part of it primarily is just personally the big tentacle monsters are just not my not my thing. I don't care about the Rathars. Borgullet is cool mostly because of all the fun that comes about talking about Borgullet but careful I was respectful Watch it. Um, you know the, the one in Solo I don't really care about I just I'm not a big monsters guy and there was something about just the simplicity of the Sarlacc pit that I really liked and to me there was a real intimidation factor to not knowing what was going on in there and once you give that to us, it just, again, it makes things comical rather than intimidating. That's it. How, how do you feel about, then, the Wampa in Empire Strikes Back? Do you have a similar feeling of now that they show the monster and, and kind of clearly identify what the threat looks like and how it behaves? Is it less intimidating now than in the original version where you barely saw it? Uh... Maybe the in the the tiniest of amounts, but the the wampa at least looks intimidating. There's very little to me that looks intimidating about the Sarlacc pit with because I, all I see is a Venus flytrap, and I'm like, you could just walk around it. What's the big deal? Uh, walk around? Have you never seen Little Shop of Horrors? <laughs> that's fair. Uh, <laughs> this I, is Audrey three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think there definitely is something that is lost when you when you lose the mystery there, but I think it's much worse here with the Sarlacc than it was with the Wampa. I don't. Uh, the only I, I really like the overhead shot where Luke is on the plank and looking at the cameras, looking straight down, and you kind of see the 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 beak come up and open up a little bit. I think that's a really cool camera shot. But yeah, you might be asked, you might be onto something. All right, now we get to the good stuff, and we get to talk about why Return of the Jedi is the best. So, Devin, what is your number three for your top list? 
So I'm going back to when I saw it in the theater in 1983, and that is I, I was so thrilled. Even though we've kind of picked this overall scene apart earlier in, in this podcast, I distinctly remember losing my mind when the lightsaber hilt comes out of R2-D2. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. It's, I mean, spoiler alert, that's my number two. Um, <laughs> for as much as oh, I, I poodooed on that scene, like, oh my God, everything there is perfect. The the music, the, oh, it's the, best. the way so he good. just waits till that last second, the you get that little hint of the lightsaber hilt, but you don't quite know because it's not the same lightsaber hilt, so you're not quite mm. sure. Yeah. That's one of those. Well, then it's, it's so cool to have that moment where not only does it visually look awesome and it gives the droids something cool to do, it does it gives the main character something cool to do, but it's that realization of, oh, these guys had a plan all along. You know, up until mm. this point, Star Wars has always been, let's just run in and see what we can scrap together. Mm. But this is kind of like the final completion of, oh, okay, now our characters have learned enough and they've grown enough that they can really successfully put these long-term plans in place. I think that, and I think you just touched on this too, and that is, whoa, green lightsaber, What? Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's my favorite part of that. <laughs> it's so cool looking. <laughs> and I mean, if, if we're looking at it like story wise, also, like Lindsay, like you were pointing out, it's showing that they had a plan all along. It, it's mm -hmm. showing that growth that Luke has made that, I, like I was saying, I don't feel is is there in the actual execution and choreography of the fight, but in terms of the story, is definitely there. And this mm. is that moment where you're just like, this is not the same Luke that we knew before. Mm -hmm. um, and then to actually have the green lightsaber ignite, beside it just being so awesome, uh, it's like, this is a, an entirely new character that you have to learn about um, mm. as, this, as this film goes on. Okay, so Devin, you're you're a real Star Wars fan who saw all the originals in the theater. So yes, I've got, I've got my card. Yes, that proves it. Yes, if you can speak to us fake fans, uh, <laughs> Holdo maneuver or Luke's green saber, what got the bigger reaction in the theater? For me personally, you personally, and for everybody else. Oh man! Yes, now speak yeah. for everyone who's seen those movies. <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, for 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 me, as far as like reaction in the theater, just appreciation of reaction of the first time you saw it in the theater. Oh man, um, that's tough because being a forty-eight-year-old dude, I don't like always let that reaction come out in the theater. Um, I thought the Holdo maneuver and how the 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 sound design played in that. I mean, that was freaking epic i like that's one of my favorites of the entire uh sequel trilogy um oh heck since we we're talking return of the jedi i'll 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 go with the holdo maneuver <laughs> <laughs> nice i definitely I like th those two are two of those like you just you have to stop and watch the moments right like there's there's a few yeah. of those you yeah. just it doesn't matter if you have it on when you're 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 working or whatever's going on. You're not looking at your phone. You're paying attention to that moment, mm. and this is one of them. Yep, absolutely. Yep. All right, Lindsay, what is your number three? 
My number three, we can definitely finish the conversation from earlier, but it is seeing how Han develops when he's not running from something. And mm-hmm. Drew oh, had made the this. point <laughs> where he thinks that actually happens in Empire, and I would half agree that his connections to other people, yes, we see that play out in Empire. And mm-hmm. we see that he has changed and he's willing to make some kind of sacrifices and he's maybe willing to stick his neck out for other people, but he doesn't quite have that autonomy just yet. And he doesn't have that freedom just yet. Now he has it. Now he doesn't have to worry about Jabba. He doesn't have to worry about any bounties. So what does he actually do now? He actually steps up and yeah, he accepts that general role and he, becomes the partner that Leia really needs him to be. He's even willing at this point to step down and let someone else pilot the Falcon, which never, ever, ever would have happened before. Yeah, I just got a funny feeling. Like I'm not going to see her again. All right, Drew. You're number three. Let's go back to Tatooine. and talk more about Jabba's pals. All right, here's the thing. I don't think the plan is any good at all. I think the plan is bonkers and makes no sense and they have no idea what they're doing. And if, cause if you string all the steps together, all the steps have to happen exactly how they do happen in order for anything to work. And I just think that's bonkers crazy. Like why do they send in Leia and Chewbacca after they send in the droids, but before Luke, like what were they actually trying to accomplish the two of them? I'm not really sure what they're doing anyway. So the Jabba's palace sequence is a lot of fun. Up until a point, like once you get to where uh, I like Luke's arrival, but you have the whole Slave Leia thing starts to kick in, and that's really problematic. Before that occurs, it's a lot of fun. Um, I like the droids entering in by themselves. I like Luke's message and how he basically donates them to Jabba's cause. I like I like Leia sneaking through the darkness in her bounty hunter disguise, and that that sequence, which is almost wordless but you know exactly what's going on um i'm not really sure how Jabba the hut got all those guys to hide behind the curtain and be dead silent it's really weird i never realized that there's a second curtain that opens up on the other side of that so that means she had to walk down the middle of this giant room and realize that they had been partitioned off on two sides whatever not a big deal it's not a perfect sequence um there's a lot of problems there's i think there's a lot of like troubling things that occur in the middle of this first 30 minutes or so. Um, and things that don't make a whole lot of sense, but there are so many things to love. I love EV 99 as the torture droid. Who's like, ah, new acquisitions. And if you look at her page and like the biography of the droid, she has a, like the, her eyes, there's one dot on the left and two dots on the right. Or I might have that backwards, but the second dot on the one side is actually a pain sensor. Like somebody had to install a pain sensor so that the droid could actually register the pain it was causing other droids. But then that makes you ask a philosophical question. Why can droids feel pain? Um, that doesn't make sense at all. Like, what's going on? But then when you get to like the skiff battle, it's so much fun. Regardless of what Brandon thinks, it's, it's a lot of fun. The lightsaber shooting through the air is amazingly cool. The whole battle sequence is a lot of fun. And I just think it's one of the most adventurous and fun parts of this movie. And it's not perfect. There's a lot of things that are, are, are troublesome in there, but man, the fun parts are fun. Hmm. All right. 
my number one, or excuse me, my number three is Palpatine. I think Palpatine is handled oh. perfectly in this film. And if you look at kind of how it was built off, built up rather, you start off with Vader, who is the big bad we've seen just decimate our heroes. He force choked like 45 people in the last film. And he's saying the person coming behind him is not as forgiving. And then you actually get Palpatine and he's this crippled old man, but somehow you're still scared. And there's the music, there's the hood. You have the whole empire coming to receive him. Vader bowing before him. He's scary. Just like there's just this unexplainable thing that just sends shivers down your spine. And when he says everything's first, uh, I can I can say words. When he says everything is proceeding as I have foreseen, you start to wonder how much he knows, how much he's known about what's going to happen up until that point. And it all points in bad directions for the heroes. So then when you go to the throne room, you have this intimidation level just goes up a whole not a whole bunch because you've got not just Vader there, but you've got the Emperor and Emperor Palpatine is just sitting, chilling in his chair, clearly in control of the entire station, like terrible posture, just looking like he's having a grand old time. And the whole time you've spent building building Vader as this worst dude in the galaxy and when you introduce his boss he he's not bigger he's not stronger and yet vader bows before him and you just you know instantly this is not a dude that you mess with and Mm. yes we got him in empire and we saw vader bow and it makes you go ooh, but there's not the the scary factor of the devil incarnate that you get in this movie and it's it's kind of with with the Empire thing, it's kind of like Snoke in The Force Awakens where you have this big image of him and you're like, ooh, that's kind of intimidating, but you're not really scared of him. The difference is once you actually get Palpatine, he, he's really scary, whereas uh, Snoke arguably is not. And just the, the fact that you have this character who is literally a puppet master that we've seen through the prequels and really all of that was based on what we got in return of the Jedi and to see what's going to happen after that with Palpatine in rise of Skywalker is super exciting. Maybe. I mean, (laughs) sorry, sorry. That's a bucket of water. I'm dumping on that. Sorry. (laughs) So thoughts on Palpatine. It's actually, it's really cool that you bring it up because I think for a lot of us at this point, we're so used to, who Palpatine is, how he became Palpatine, his rise to power, his physical deformities, how they came to be, that we forget how fantastic he is in this movie and that this really is the first time audiences, 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 but it's the first time people really got the chance to meet him. And then for, you know, the, 20 years after that, how much of a mystery he stayed. Um, (laughs) You know, I I think Palpatine is kind of something that we, we take for granted now, but when we look at him in just the scope of return of the Jedi, yeah, he's definitely one of the top three things about that. This movie. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so let's circle back around and Devin, your number two. So uh, I confess I didn't read the fine print in the rules of this thing that we're going through tonight. So th- there's a couple of things that happen in fairly quick succession that I'm tempted to just kind of blend as one. Is that okay or will I be kicked off? Uh, I mean, we'll see. If, if I agree with them, if I agree Ooh, yeah. with them, you okay. can stay. Kind of what I was going to say. Depends okay. on how much well, praise. How much praise are you going to lavish on Wedge Antilly? That's really <laughs> okay. You saw my notes. You saw yes. my notes. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I'll allow it. I, I, I just again going back and, and Brandon, as you alluded to, because I am a real fan um, and seeing this in the theater um, as what was I at the time? I don't know, eleven, twelve, something like that. Um, the just complete rush of adrenaline that I as uh, a, a kid got and the collective cheering that happened in the movie theater when Luke throws his lightsaber hilt. And, and that was like wow. this, this, oh my gosh. And even as an 11, 12 year old, I'm just like, that's incredibly badass. I mean, everybody knows my feelings on that. <laughs> it's just fun. I mean, <laughs> it is fun. <laughs> Listen, and that's what Star Wars is. It's that sudden rush of, oh my God, yes, it it is so deep and it's telling all these great stories, but you get that sudden rush of excitement where you can't believe what you just saw, whether it's mm. because of the technological advances of how they tell the story, except for size si- noodles, or... <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was going to say C.O. Bibble, and I was very confused. C.O. <laughs> Bibble was never wrong. But whether it's that or whether it's the the twin sons or just because it is just plain fun. And I'm actually going to plug even my number two in here quickly because I think it goes along with this. But it's really just the speeder chase on Endor for no other reason than I was a kid when I first saw it and Mm. I loved it. I had such Mm. a good time watching it and I could rewind it over and over and over and just press play. And watch it and get excited every single time. And that's part of what Star Wars is. Well, and well, from have- the speeder chase on, it really doesn't let up. Like, there, there's always something, whether it's something exciting or something deeply emotional and moving, like, going on for the entire rest of the film. It's it's just a nonstop, yeah, a nonstop rush. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll piggyback my number two is all those those kinds of sci-fi elements that are just so much fun to watch. And and I it really started this is really dumb, but the home one briefing where they're introducing the whole Death Star and the shield generator was super fun to watch. And I know it's just a bunch of people talking at not a big empty space in the middle of a room, but man, was it cool. And then all the spaceships as they're flying through, they establish what the fleet looks like, the giant Mon Calamari ships, the X-Wings, the A-Wings, and the Falcon is weaving in and out of it. All like the space stuff was like, that's my fun stuff. You, you know, Devin mm-hmm. likes the lightsaber and, and Lindsay likes the speeder bike chase and who cares what Brandon likes, but all those, like the way the ships weaved in and out and it really looked like a battle, you know, mm. the, the whole screen was filled with spaceships flying left and right, chasing each other, blowing up, shooting laser beams across. You got a wings flying through the bridge of the executor. It crashes into the death star Two surface. Oh, that stuff is that, that just tickles me in, in all the right places. Wow. <laughs> and it's really cool I because I mean, in, in A New Hope, we get the X-Wings and the Y-Wings, but we only get a few ships, right? 
And then Empire, we really don't get that many because it's much more of a character film. It's a lot closer in. We get the snow speeders, you know, but but not really any new battleships, any new fighters. And then you come here yeah. and you've got the A wings, you've got the B wings. You get to oh, actually the B wings are so cool. Oh, I mean, it's just and if you think about the the stories that have come out of that, it's just it's great. Like I think that if you don't have this whole section of return of the jedi i mean obviously a lot of stuff doesn't work because it's like the final act of the final act (laughs) but even more so like the the entire starfighter section of the fandom is not as rabid as they are like that's oh yeah that's a huge section are star wars fans and and drew i know that's one of the big things for you is starfighters and i mean if you don't get return of the jedi that's not going to be a big part of it yeah, I, I take that one step further. I don't think you have a lot of the iconography used in Rebels at all. Ooh, I think a, a lot very, of that yeah. goes away if you don't have a lot of these establishing shots. I mean, everything from like the helmets that the pilots wear in Rebels um, are the ones used in the the Y-Wings in, in Return of the Jedi. In, uh, is it Gray Squadron? Gold Squadron? I can't remember now. But it's it's that same design where it wraps all the way around the jaw and goes back up and has just the opening for your face with the glasses over top. It's the same one they use in Rebels. I, if you if you don't have this kind of the, the space battle, you lose all the X-Wing books. You don't have Alphabet Squadron. You lose a lot of your video game potentials and just a lot of accessibility into the world. Um, and, and it does it so well. I mean, there are missteps here and there. It's it's not it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But man, is it a lot of fun to watch. I, that it's still my my favorite part. Is I usually when I turn on Return of the Jedi, I fast forward to the part where Lando calls for the All Wings report in, and I and I start it from there because it's just the most fun. I can't disagree with you at all there. All right, so... I, I think, Brandon, your number... is. Did we already cover your number we've already two? Covered, we've already covered everybody's number two, so we're on number ones now. So, Ooh. yeah. Let's Almost talk about there. why Return of the Jedi is the best film ever. Devin, go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, how much time do we have left? Um, all the time listen, that my uh, batteries will last. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's make sure the memory card's not full yet. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I heard some stories off air that may mean I need to go quicker than anticipated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> listen, I, I, one of the greatest things about Star Wars is as we grow as fans and we go through our own trials in real life, that we often have these new insights into the various characters and aspects and story arcs of Star Wars. And, you know, it's it's interesting that... When I was um, seeing it for the first time, when I saw Empire for the first time, I distinctly remember, again, one of those collective audience gasps, right? When we just get, I don't know, 0.5 of one second of when we see Darth Vader's helmet being lowered onto the back of his head and us just losing our minds going like, what does that mean? And then here we are at the end of Return of the Jedi when he tells Luke to take the mask off. And that was just one of those many moments in Star Wars where the collective breath of the audience was just held in anticipation. And, you know, I I think that when that mask is taken off, it was just a a crazy experience. And and that was as the person seeing it, you know, very young in the theater. And I will say, again, as we grow and we face some of life's stuff – 
um, we see things differently. And, you know, I don't want to take this in a, in a, in a down direction at all, but we've got Anakin Vader, however you want to label him at that point, realizing that he's quite literally on his last breath. In fact, you know, Luke says, but you'll die. And he says, it's too late for me now. I want to see with my own eyes. And as I was kind of prepping for the show, um, one of life's kind of crazy ironies, I guess, is that um, one of my very close friends just got discovered with stage four cancer last week. And she told her family last night, I, I it's time to take me off the ventilator. And they had like this one last serene moment together and, and she was gone. And so while I guess that moment may not be on the top of many people's lists, I, I see how, gosh, we, we can relate to it in so many ways with our own relationships and our own lives, whether it's parents or friends or, or whomever it is. And so one of the things I love best about Star Wars, regardless of the movie, is that we can draw real life connections and coping mechanisms and so many other things from it. So for me, for this episode, it's the reveal of who Anakin Skywalker is with the removal of Darth Vader's mask. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you think about it, when, when we're watching it as kids and Vader asks to see Luke with his own eyes, Hmm. we are kind of Luke where, we want our parents to really see us for who we are, right? And then as we get older, we move to that Vader side of things where we failed and we feel like we've messed things up and we're not the hero that Luke Skywalker was and we just want people to recognize the good that's still inside of us, you know, the the mask coming off. We want to have that one relationship where we can be truly honest with somebody and open with somebody about our failures and and... Yeah, You know, and and even on a a lesser scale to, you know, simple moments like like you were talking about, Devin, and sorry for your loss, but just it is really beautiful, the connections that we can make between cinema and real life, because I've always said, like, Star Wars helped me understand life more than life ever helped me understand life. Like, it it helps Mm. us to make sense of these things. It's that whole, like, fiction makes more sense than real life does um, kind of idea is yeah is extremely yeah. powerful yeah i like it all right uh Lindsay, let's go to you what is your favorite thing about return of the jedi all right i don't want to talk about it too much now because i have a sneaking suspicion brandon it might also be yours max Rebo. Um, that's it. Got it. Show yes. <laughs> um, no, it's something that honestly two weeks ago would not have been on my list. But after talking about this scene with you when um, for the show a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the cave scenes and how the entire Death Star sequence is really just another iteration of going into that cave. Uh, Mm. That really changed my opinion, Brandon. You really and truly deeply changed how I look at that entire scene. And because of that, I think that the Death Star fight um, between Luke, the Emperor, and Vader has to be my number one thing about this movie. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just... Was I right? Was that your number one? I mean, yeah, to nobody's (laughs) surprise. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's that's why I want to save it because you you really do such an amazing job explaining it. So I kind of want to breeze over mine right now and then hear your thoughts on it. I mean, as far as the cave goes, like it, it's on our cave episode. It's it's too long to go through right now specifically, but to see Luke, you know, go into the belly of the beast and, and literally like going into the depths of hell because originally, you know, the idea was Palpatine was going to have this bad guy lair underground on, you know, in a volcanic planet, which of course would later become Mustafar. But, you know, it kind of goes with what Devin was saying also that moment when Luke throws away his lightsaber is one of those moments that's grown with me as I've, as I've gotten older. Never. I'll never turn to the dark side. You failed, Your Highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. For most of the original trilogy, I didn't really connect with Luke until that final moment. And that one moment, him throwing away his lightsaber, has provided me hope in the darkest moments of my life because it it gives mm. me that belief that even no matter how dark things go, no matter how wrong you mess things up, you can always turn them around and that redemption is allowed no matter how dark things get or, or, or the wrongs that you've done. And I mean, that has quite literally been a beacon of hope for me in, in some of the literal darkest times of my life when I've faced death, when I was really sick and not taking care of myself, you know, my mental health issues, all of those things in the in the darkest of those times, I was always able to go back to, to Luke in particular and throwing away his lightsaber. And it's not just that he chooses a path of nonviolence, which I think is really important for the Jedi. It's not just that he redeems his father. It's that he course corrects himself. And it's that he finds, this goes with what we were talking about with Obi-Wan earlier, he finds the third way. And for me, that's been mm -hmm. really important because I, I've always felt, well, I shouldn't say always felt. There's certain arenas in my life where I felt like I'm being pushed in this direction and I don't want to go that way. I see why people want to take me that way, but I don't want to go that way and I need to find my own way. And seeing Luke throw away that lightsaber and being willing to give his life for that belief is immensely powerful. Mm. Well said. Thank you. All right, so go listen to our Caves episode. It was fun. Drew, <laughs> you're up. Okay, round us out. I'm going to I'm going to do my best um, because I think what I what I noticed this time around and it became my favorite part of this movie is related to all of these things because you guys have all kind of very well uh, summarized and analyzed why that last that last conflict on the Death Star is so important. And I, and I agree with that. What I never noticed before was how sad the movie is up to that point. Um, and this goes back to what Lindsay was talking about, how the film feels very disconnected. There's a front half and there's a back half and there's a tiny little bridge in between. But I think that the, the common thread through this entire film is the tragedy of Luke Skywalker and how the first hour and 55 minutes shows you that he is on the brink of the dark side. Um, mm. And it's it's visually identified from the first moment you see him. He's dressed completely in black in the heat of Tatooine's twin sons. Um, he is 
head to toe in black, and then he covers that with another layer of black. So visually, we're identifying he is not the same knight in white, shiny, bright, shiny armor that he has been in the past. He hit, but really, he's found a severe confidence in his newfound powers. And the first thing we see him use his powers for is to choke two Gamorrean guards. And the only thing we've, only other time we've seen that kind of use of the force has been Vader. So mm-hmm. we instantly are like, whoa, wait a minute. This is not the same guy he used to be. Now, he doesn't have his lightsaber for the first couple encounters through Jabba's palace. But as soon as he does, he uses it to strike out in aggression and anger. And this goes to kind of what Brandon was talking about about the way in which he fights. He is a powerhouse here, and he is overly confident in what he can do. He has constructed his own lightsaber, and he uses it for what he thinks a lightsaber is for. It's for fighting and for killing guys in front of him. Um, he is extremely offensive, and I mean that in like a combat way, not like he hurts people's feelings, but he is on the offense for that entire sequence, entirely contradicting what Yoda taught him in Empire Strikes Back. The Force is supposed to be used for knowledge and defense, never for attack. And he failed to learn that lesson on Bespin, where he's the first one to ignite his lightsaber, and the fight with Vader goes terribly wrong. Same thing here. He brings out his big gun immediately, and he, I think in this moment, is confident in his powers, and he is so aggressive because he is unconsciously tapping into the dark side here. Um, I think when Luke gets to Dagobah, and he is talking with Yoda in Yoda's last few moments, Yoda confesses to him that he was afraid of Luke going to Bespin because he wasn't, he wasn't confident in Luke's ability to bear the burden of the truth of his parentage. And he sees the evidence of that before him now. Yoda tries to remind Luke what the Force is for. And that, I think, is when Luke realizes that he's embracing the dark side, even unknowingly. Um, he's doing exactly like what Anakin did. He fe- he got these newfound powers and he used them to his own ends. You know, Anakin wanted to use the Force to stop people that he loved from dying. And Luke is doing the same thing. He's doing it in an aggressive and violent way, and he recognizes that finally when 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 Yoda says, "Yeah, you did all these things, but you're not ready." You know, this is not what I really wanted you to do. I think that's kind of the subtext of that conversation is where Yoda is saying, I told you that this was for knowledge and defense, not for aggression. And Luke, I think it hits him in the stomach. That's why he spends that entire scene with his mouth agape. Like, he is looking at Yoda in disbelief, a a calm, controlled disbelief, but disbelief nonetheless, because he hadn't seen it before. But we can see him slowly descending into the dark side through this whole film. Um and it's it, it, his, that descent is strong and it is tragic and it looks completely innocent. But I think it is turned around kind of the way you guys have all summarized in the end, that confrontation and um, on the Death Star and the way he throws his lightsaber. Brandon, like you have you've said a, a handful of times over the past almost two years, we've been doing this now that his his turning away and throwing away the lightsaber is a big deal because every time he has that lightsaber in hand, things are going poorly for him. You know, on Tatooine, he uses it. On Endor, he uses it briefly. He slices through the speeder bike, which which kills the scout trooper. He's using it in a way... He, he thinks the lightsaber is what a Jedi is for. 
And that's living in the same mentality as the Jedi Council did in the prequel era. The Jedi are meant to be warriors. And he's still using it the wrong way. Even though Yoda's done everything he can to try and, and put him on a different path, he's inherently following the same path that Anakin was following. Hmm. Yeah. Until, right? Until that moment, he sees Vader on the ground. He under, you know, the, the robotic hand that he cut off matches his own robotic hand, which he looks at, flexes. You could hear the sound of the servos whirring in the, in the mix. And, and he puts together, I have become what I have been trying to, to stop all this time. And the only thing I can do is to take this lightsaber and throw it away. And that is a powerful statement. And I don't think it's ever been as clear to me how all the events of this film are supposed to be linked up until this last rewatch. Hmm. I'd be curious if I can ask Drew, if you, I can ask you the way you described Luke, especially, you know, the various points from the beginning in, until that moment throughout Return of the Jedi and, and leaning towards that, dare I use the, the phrase gray Jedi to, to dark Jedi. Um, do you think that <laughs> I know, right? Do you think that that actually makes a really good bridge to what we learn of Luke within The Last Jedi? I, I think so, because if you think about what we see in like the flashback sequences in The Last Jedi, what is Luke's solution to the problem? It's a lightsaber. Mm -hmm. He falls back, and I don't think it's necessarily that Luke falls back into the same um, patterns as what he knew in his training. I think it's a human falling back into the patterns that a mm -hmm. human has learned. I, I think that's mm -hmm. a, human con a commentary on the human condition. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a very strong connection from return of the Jedi to the sequel movies because of that. Like we mm. don't know everything that happens in those 30 years. And I'm sure he has ups and downs in those times. But when he sees on the death star two, he can see, he looks back and sees himself slipping into the, the cold embrace of the dark side. And he couldn't even tell, like mm. he didn't even know that's what was happening. So he was aware that that is a thing that can happen to a Force user. He is able to see it in Ben before mm. anybody else can. But he forgets to check his own response until it's, it's just about too late. Now, the good news is he catches himself before he murders Ben. That's good. There's still terrible consequences to his action because it causes Ben to, to really kind of confirm all the negative thoughts he had implanted mm. presumably by Snoke. And he takes them out. Uh, he takes those thoughts, combines them with his uncle trying to come and kill him in the middle of the night and reacts really how anyone in that age bracket and that sense of maturity would is likely to respond. He lashes mm -hmm. out. I don't think that's, I don't think that's an unexpected or unreasonable action for someone to take. I mean, it's okay. Let me back that up. It's not good to kill people, <laughs> but I think that it is a, it is a predictable response. Mm -hmm. I think Luke was trying to prevent Ben's fall to the dark side, but at the same moment he failed to keep himself from falling into old habits. And in mm -hmm. that way, I think strongly lines up with the character we see in return of the Jedi. Hmm. Yeah, well said. I can't push back on that. And I, I've never seen a challenge with the Luke we see in The Last Jedi. And I think your insight there just kind of affirms where where I've stood. So thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. Happy. To, I'm, I'm glad that you, you uh, asked that question, because I think that 
the challenge to Luke's characterization in the last Jedi, which we'll talk about in like what, four months or so from now, um, in, mm. in more detail, probably is, yeah. is really important to understand that. I mean, over the course of 30 years, yeah, everyone's going to change and he's mm. everyone, every human being, I think believes that they are doing the best they can with what they've got at the moment. And right. it is only with the benefit of hindsight that we realize what we could have done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just another moment of that in his life. And you may not like it. I don't like it. I don't like what he did. And, but I mean, that's the omniscient viewpoint that the audience has that the character does not have in those moments. And you better believe at a 50 something year old male, I'm going to be making mistakes like that. We all will. <laughs> I mean, right, except for Lindsay, right. she won't be a 55-year-old male. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I mean, we, we will support you if you do. It's 2019. It's totally cool. We'll always be friends. Um, but it's like to expect somebody to go through the events of Return of the Jedi like Luke does and to think he comes out perfect in the end, I think is a complete misunderstanding of what happens to that character. Because we got to remember something very important. When he comes back from 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 burying – or not burying – from burning Vader's um, body mm-hmm. – he is still dressed in black, and that lightsaber is still on his hip. So he carries yeah. with him still those qualities and characteristics that can lead him down the path of darkness yet once more. And so we should not be surprised that it is something that he has to struggle against later on in his life. And I think yeah. that's a, a life lesson is that we cannot extricate our human nature from what our soul truly desires. You know, even though we know what might be the right thing to do, we still screw up and we still fail. And why do we do that? It's because our, our human nature is a flawed and imperfect one. And, and mm. the human condition is to struggle against that. Well, yeah. and- you, you had me at extricate. I <laughs> <laughs> see in my back of my brain. I was like, please let that be the right word. choice." <laughs> And I think say it with also, confidence, they'll believe anything you say. <laughs> <laughs> That's my whole teaching strategy. Um, <laughs> I, I think also it lines up with the Return of the Jedi, Luke, because Luke doesn't realize, you know, what he's becoming until he sees Vader's mechanical hand be chopped off and looks at his own, right? And there's not a mirror like that for Ben Solo. So not yet, mm. not yet, anyway. Well, yeah, and and, and so. You know, his thinking is is not just the he always rushes head headlong into things and, and jumps to conclusions before he should. That's like his whole thing in the original trilogy. But also there's this evil to to fight against, but there's no nothing holding it. There's no Vader for Ben to face to go, this is not what I want to be. And so in the, yeah, you know, it's you like of, Anakin. Anakin didn't couldn't see the evil that was in front of him because there was no evil in front of him. Well, the evil was so well hidden because there was a master behind right, it. Right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. That had put that had put blinders on top of him. The problem that that Kylo Ren faces is that he was able to confront and actually sl- strike down that evil. If you think about it, if if you th- compare the throne room sequence in the Last Jedi and what, but. If you and, and if you equate Ben to Luke, Luke is fighting Vader and refuses to strike him down. Ben strikes Snoke down as soon as he possibly can. And so just like the Emperor wanted Luke to kill Vader because he could then replace Vader, Ben is the fulfillment of that 
in that he strikes mm-hmm. down Luke and then immediately takes up the mantle of supreme leader. So we kind of see both options there. You can, Brandon, like you had said, the third way is to throw away the the violence, the the retribution, the vengeance, and to stop it, to break that cycle. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a generational sin. And it's something we're always going to be facing. And, and, I mean, no matter how episode nine ends like that's still going to be the reality like you said of the human condition so but you know star wars is always there to to teach us those lessons and and to like we said grow with us so that will wrap up our conversation for return of the jedi um i think we can all come to an agreement now that it is the best piece of cinema uh since gone with the wind (laughs) i want to take that as a I'm going to take that as a yes and throw it to Devin. Why don't you tell them, Devin, where they can find you and all the cool stuff Unmistakably Star Wars is doing? You bet. Well, first off, thanks, guys, for uh, letting USW rep on your guys' pod because we are fans of Clashing Sabers. We think you guys do a fantastic Aww. job. Well, so we are we are honored to be part of this. Uh, for those of you interested in uh, checking out Unmistakably Star Wars, you can swing on by unmistakablystarwars.com. Of course, you can find us in Stitcher, iTunes, all those places. And then... We, like so many others, are on that wretched hive of scum and villainy known as Twitter. And you can find us there at unmistakably SW. And if you like Clashing Sabers, you'll like Unmistakably Star Wars because they do, you, you guys do a really good job of doing like in depth analysis of themes and things like that. Um, mm, thank you. More of that deep side of Star Wars that we all enjoy. So, uh, Lindsay, tell them all the cool stuff you're doing. You guys can always find me here on the Clashing Sabers Network. Um, Brendan and I do host another show, uh, Don't Burn the Sacred Text. Most recently, we had the chance to interview Claudia Gray, so definitely check that out in your feed. Uh, let us know what you think there. And you can find me personally on Twitter at the Lady of Lore. All right. And Drew, since you're not doing really anything important, um, tell him your Wow. <laughs> your Twitter handle? Wow. I, don't know. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Go ahead. Well, it, 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 I was going to make a joke about the last article I put on our site at clashingsabers.net, which I think if you guys still enjoy reading things, um, I would direct you there because we, we do like to put up a lot of, of written analysis. The last article that I put up was um, some thoughts and reflections on the end of Rebels in the season finale there. And as a result, I was called uh, bloodthirsty, um, in love with the sound of my own voice, and so rambly that you can't understand anything going on. But nobody said I was wrong. <laughs> so I'll take that. <laughs> that uh, but you is can fi- fair. You'll find me on the Twitters. I'm at the Drew Brett. It's pretty easy to find. I like to go haunt our uh, Facebook gla- uh, Facebook group, which is the Clashing Saber Star Wars community. Um, try and keeping up with things and uh, there. I, I, I like to promote that as a space where you can share your contributions. So are, if you're drawing things, if you're making videos or recording your own podcasts and or writing your own things, put a link there. Um, it's a guaranteed way to get some additional eyeballs on some content because it's a great place to share um, what it is you want to put out there. But uh, we're also going to read it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. We may or may not respond to you. So, but we all we, we try and do things in the spirit of love and friendship. Um, but in, in fairness, we, we will... You know, it's great to get those things out there because it gives us a chance to kind of see what you guys are thinking. You guys have inspired uh, conversations here on the show as mm-hmm. a direct result. 
um, and vice versa. We're always looking for you guys' input. You can put it on the website. Brandon, what's the email they can send? Clashing uh, Sabers Network com- at gmail.com. You can send a, your thoughts and questions on in there. We will find time to argue and discuss them and, and uh, record it and, and bring it back to you guys to enjoy. All right. And then, uh, of course, Clashing Sabers on Twitter, ratings, reviews, all those things. You know how this goes. Ladies and gentlemen, Batch 8. Hi-ho! Oh, my God! Did we, we finally do it? We got it. Devin, you have to come yes. on every show now. You're our unicorn. Uh, all right. It's, oh, I'm happy to oblige. You're the good luck charm. <laughs> That's what it took. <laughs> the podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabers.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use different informational and educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it. It's ours. They made it. It's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here. <laughs>